Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by returning guest Arnold Kling. Arnold, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. So, uh, Arnold, we did our last two episodes in a pre-COVID world. Uh, it feels, uh, feels forever ago. You've been doing a lot of work on, on COVID on, on, on your excellent blog that I recommend listeners check out. Let's first talk about wh- what's happening in, in your opinion. Obviously, there are uh, reports you know, all over the place just sort of questioning a lot of sort of our you know, sort of foundations of how much we can know in the first place. How do you sort of make sense of, of what's happening right now? And what does this mean for our understanding of epistemology even? Yeah. So uh, I describe this as a wicked virus that's wicked in three sense, senses. One is it's very deadly in at least certain populations. Two is it does seem to be very stealthy in terms of how it spreads. Uh, there seem, you know, the, it does seem like uh, asymptomatic people spread, uh, spread the virus. Uh, but most of all, it's uh, wicked epistemologically. It's amazing how many things experts have not been able to pin down uh, and, and they disagree about. So the prevalence of, the, of the, the disease. So right now, you could get some experts who might say, well, well no one believes that the sort of 1.1 million cases or whatever we're at is, is the right measure. But people probably vary between 3 million and you know, upwards of 30 million or conceivably 50 million people having it. Experts don't agree on how it attacks the body. And so therefore they don't agree on how to treat it. They don't agree on why we observe much lower deaths in the Asian countries that surround China, like, like Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, why those are lower than Western European countries. And some people have noticed that Eastern European countries have lower death rates, and that raises the question. So there's just an amazing amount that we don't know. We don't know that experts disagree on how it spreads. Uh, there were experts who were saying, you know, if you, you know, if you're not careful about what surfaces you touch, it can the virus can live a long time on surfaces. But it seems like more recent analysis of actual people getting the disease don't implicate surfaces; they implicate first-person contact. So there's just a lot of stuff we don't know, and. On top of that, you have people arguing about politically. So I'm not sure that the results from remdesivir are any more encouraging or discouraging than the results from HCQ. If you're against Trump, then you know that HCQ is horrible and remdesivir is your great hope at this point. If you were running the show, how should we be dealing with, with, with wicked problems like this? 
Yeah, if I were running the show, and sometimes I actually think, and this is this is well, it'll sound like what it sounds like, but I think if if I had been put in charge of the CDC two months ago, knowing nothing about biology and knowing nothing about epidemiology, I think we would be in better shape. So, like I say, you can take that however you want to take it. But first of all, I, I think we ought to we have to approach this as a scientific puzzle to see, I would have liked to see more random sample testing earlier, but I'm now understand very clearly how important it is to have accurate tests. So one of the things you want to do is really work on the testing procedure, find ways to have accurate tests. And there are all sorts of slip ups. I mean, there can be, you know, a slip up in, in the test, the way the test works, there can be a slip up in the way it's administered. So there, there are challenges, but but really focus. I would have focused on quality of tests and taking random samples rather than just getting as many tests out there as possible. I know a lot of people are fans of lots of tests, and Paul Romer has an argument for why even a lot of bad tests could be useful. But I, I would I want to learn more, and you can only learn more if the tests are reasonably accurate and they're done on a on a very a well-designed sample of the population, so you're getting some representation of the population. The other thing that I would really like to see is more what I call micro-experiments. We're experimenting with whole states and with the whole society by saying, oh, well, we're going to lock down this, we're going to let this restriction up, we're going to close these beaches. All these experiments being done on whole populations, but no one wants to do the experiment like I, I, I wanted early when, when it was unclear how much surface contamination mattered, just have uh, somebody who is uh, known to have the disease put his hand on a doorknob, go through the door, and have a hundred not infected people walk through that, touch that same doorknob, and see if, if people get infected from that. I think just knowing more about this transmission process would be useful. I'd like to know about the difference between indoors and outdoors. Put people in the same, again, you could imagine very healthy people willing to volunteer to experiment, young healthy people figuring, well, you know, worst case, I'll get a low symptomatic case or whatever, or I'm just willing to uh, do this for the sake of my country, for the sake of my fellow citizens, but I'm willing to be tested this way. Expose them to uh, infected people in different conditions, indoors versus outdoors. The reason that one comes to me is that I have a hard time explaining some of the heterogeneities that you see. Uh, For example, I was expecting this virus to just be deadly for homeless people. I mean, homeless people are not healthy people. They are not going to avoid the, the infection. And yet the homeless people who have been tested, sometimes they find large amounts of people with the illness where they've been infected, but they're asymptomatic. And I just wonder, how do you explain that? And then we're expecting Indio of people dying, and yet that's not true. You know, we all know that New York has been especially hard hit in terms of death rates. So throwing that all together, my hypothesis is that the, having a very heavily indoor lifestyle, including you know the elevator buildings and the subways, is unhealthy, and having an outdoor lifestyle is relatively healthy. You know the other 
thing that makes this very difficult to evaluate is the nursing home phenomenon. The fact that when it get once it gets into nursing homes, it seems like you know a huge proportion of the deaths come there. So one of the things I would be trying to do from a de- well, first of all, the data collection is I think pretty weak. You know, the CDC is not demanding consistent reporting or timely reporting or reporting the date of death as opposed to you know maybe the person died two weeks ago and is not being reported as having died today. Uh, so I'm doing a lot more reporting, but in particular, I really want to see reporting by age group and by what the status of whether they were in a nursing home or not. So we, I think that would just give us a clearer idea of what the dangers are outside of nursing homes. Totally. You, you've written a lot about the importance of, of experiments, of controlled experiments, and also about just people's you know, instinctive resistance to being part of those experiments. Why, why do you think it is that we're so resistant to that? Um, I suspect that you open up a clear line of accountability between the experimenter and the result, especially if it's a bad result for somebody. So if 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 I sort of casual, cavalierly say, well, yeah, we should have an experiment. We should have, you know, 100 people play volleyball, beach volleyball with uh, one or two sick people and compare that to, you know, people sitting in a classroom, you know, four seats apart with a couple of sick people and see what happens. Well, so so, suppose somebody dies in that experiment. Well, I'm clearly accountable for that death. Whereas if people die because of, because of things that a governor orders that, you know, that doesn't show up. I mean, another asymmetry is that the governors are going to be measured on their COVID deaths, not on their non-COVID deaths. So if somebody you know, misses a cancer treatment or you know, doesn't go to the hospital because they don't think they can get an elective surgery, but then subsequently dies from whatever they had, you know, that, that won't cost the governor. But if, if somebody, so, that, so that, that, to me, that gives some real incentive to shut down things. You know, the, they're, they're much more accountable for that than they are for, uh, for other costs, including deaths from other causes. And do you think that we should uh, end the lockouts? Or what is the literally latest thing to the end of the lockout? Well, okay, so my line on that is the governors did not really shut down the economy and the governors cannot reopen the economy. We have to remember that it's private decisions that are driving most of this. And so on top of whatever private decisions people make, you have restrictions that governors put on, which may be helpful or not helpful. I Honestly, I think that the closing the beaches in California has got to be the dumbest thing you can imagine. Again, because I have this hypothesis that having an outdoor lifestyle is good for you and getting people outside more is better. And I just trust people to calibrate their own their behavior to their own risk preferences. So if somebody, you know, so if you're, if you're scared of getting into contact with people who go to a beach, I think you can manage to avoid getting into contact with people who go to a beach. But if you, and if your idea is, well, yeah, I could go to the beach, but I want to wear a mask. You can, you know, people can do that. 
I, I could actually see potentially see imposing wearing masks on lots of people because I see you know on everybody, but we can discuss that separately. But in any case, so I would lift all the restrictions, but not under the assumption that people are just going to go out and you know go to sporting events or go to crowded restaurants or go to you know very enclosed bars where they're you know elbow to elbow. Uh, I think most people, you, I guess the way I would do it if I, if I were the governor, I'd say, look, this is not an all clear signal. This is a very dangerous virus. Strongly recommend that you avoid crowds and especially crowds indoors. But uh, it's not my business to order you, you know, to, to tell you how you run your life. You're going to, you know, I don't tell everybody that you can't ride a motorcycle or you can't uh, skydive, you know, I just, you know, all I can tell you is, you know, here are some dangers, especially for certain populations, but you're going to live your life. I think what would, would happen, though, uh, is it would not magically reopen the economy. I think a lot of people, and maybe this is, you know, me showing my age, uh, a lot of us would still spend a lot of time indoors in our houses or out walking as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of engaging in kind of public uh, commercial activity. So I think commercial activity would go way down. I mean, very few people would be willing to travel, for example, like like on airplanes. Totally. And what, um, let's get into the economic response on the, both the fiscal and, and the monetary policy side what what do you uh, disagree with? What do you agree with? And what do you think we should be doing going forward? Okay, well, I start by disagreeing with the basic model that everyone is taught in freshman economics or the journalists convey and so on. So that, that you have that issue right there. Um, the real economy, that is, you know, the amount of economic activity, GDP, employment, and so on, uh, is in the textbook model, it's driven by spending. My line is that the Keynesians say spending creates jobs, jobs create spending. Uh, my line is that the real economy consists of coming up with patterns of sustainable specialization and trade. So uh, economic activity is all about, I find something to do that's very specialized, that turns out to have value in the marketplace and then I can consume all sorts of things that I could never produce for myself. And the way those patterns of specialization and trade get established is that by trial and error, entrepreneurs trying things out. Most of the time, in normal times, you just, whatever worked yesterday works today and works tomorrow, and, and they're with a few changes around the edges. So around the edges, some businesses go out of business, some businesses start up. Every month, in a normal times, about 4 million new jobs get created and about 3.8 million or you know, a little less than that 4 million get destroyed. People, people are changing jobs, some people are leaving jobs, other people going into jobs. So there's, there's about that much churn. So if you figure there are about 100, and, 100 let's say 150, people, 150 million people working and 4 million uh, changing every month, you can get an idea of what the churn rate is normally. Dur- so to me, a recession in the real economy or a b- downturn in the real economy comes when some of these 
patterns become unsustainable, many more than usual. So it's not, instead of being 3.8 million jobs being lost offset by 4 million gain, you know, you get four, 4 to 5 million lost and maybe only 2 to 3 million gain or something like that. Well, uh, that would be a, a, an atrociously bad recession, a really bad one. A typically bad recession would be something like 3.5 million gain, 4 million lost in a month. So we're going to have a horrible recession in that sense. I think the cure for that is sort of capitalism on steroids. That is lots and lots of entrepreneurs trying things uh, and finding new new patterns. And maybe some of the old patterns come back. But, you know, for something, you know, I can't picture Las Vegas hotels coming back very quickly. So some other forms of entertainment would pick up you know, to, to pick up the slack. So anyway, that, so that's my, my picture of how it recovers. So going back to fiscal policy, the assumption that the government throwing a lot of money at things is going to restore things. There's, I think, an assumption there that, that that'll, it will enable people to go back to the old patterns. And maybe it will. I'm not against all of it. I'm not against make all the attempt, but I, I wouldn't count on it. And I think trying to ensure that we go back to the old patterns is not really a good approach because a lot of the old patterns are not sustainable. We will need a lot of new, uh, new businesses formed uh, to make up for the old ones. So that's on the fiscal side. And I have a worry about that that sort of goes beyond it being, I think it'll be somewhat ineffective or maybe very ineffective, Uh, but it ties in with, the monetary side. Um, my view of inflation is again heterodox. I don't think of inflation as being something that's a number that's fine-tuned by what the Fed does, you know, wiggling up, up or down money supply. I think it. People have a mindset about inflation, and for most of your life, that mindset has been inflation is not a big deal. We know that. You know, healthcare and college tuition goes up. We know that uh, the real cost of computing goes down, and that's the main thing about prices. And basically, you if you take a salary now, you figure a month from now you'll be able to buy stuff at about the same prices that you see now. In the 1970s, we had something different. We had inflation that got above 10% per year, and people were very conscious of it. The, the, the mindset was you know, what's going to go up and how can I conserve on my checking account because I'm not getting enough interest to make up for the prices going up? Uh, what kind of cost of living guarantee do I have in my uh, labor contract? Because if I don't have cost of living protection, I'm just going to fall behind. Uh, so you had a different mindset. And of course, worst case is you have a hyperinflation mindset where People know that the government is just putting out pieces of paper that are going to be worthless tomorrow, and so they can't spend the money fast enough. And when they can't spend the money fast enough, that becomes a self-reinforcing hyperinflation. So back to where we are, uh, we are playing with fire on the inflation front uh, long term. That is, government running up a huge debt, all being paid for not by borrowing from the public, but as soon as the Treasury sells securities, the, the Fed buys them back. 
So we're just doing pure money printing. And if the goods and services are not increasing, which they're not, they're going down, you've got more money chasing fewer goods. Sooner or later, that will, we will see prices going up. We are already are seeing them in the food sector. And uh, I think just, you know, that is going to, going to become more widespread. And once an inflation mindset sets in, it gets very hard to stop. It reinforces itself. And that's, that's kind of the worst case that I worry about. I'm curious, uh, and you, you had a, a talking about just to go deeper, where, where do you disagree with Scott Sumner's idea of, of level targeting? Of if you have some inflation under you know, sort of a bigger yeah. strategy, what would that look like? Yeah, he's much closer to textbook macro than I am. So I don't, I start from the view that the central bank is basically just a bank. So the Fed can't fine-tune the inflation rate any more than Citicorp can. It's the inflation rate for most of the time is set by the inflation mindset that people have. Uh, but in an environment like we are now, where the, where the government is running these huge deficits and be, the Fed is being asked to finance all of them, first of all, I don't think that the Fed can target, can target anything right now. They're being told, in effect, you make sure that the interest rates on the debt are low and you make sure that the, and they're also being told to make sure that the financial sector doesn't have any hiccups in it, that there, you know, nobody, no major financial institution goes bankrupt. No major financial market suffers a a big drop in prices. So they're they're being asked, I I think nominal GDP is the furthest thing from their minds, even if they could control it. I, I don't really think they can. But what's uppermost on their minds is the they're probably watching every bank, every major bank, every major hedge fund, everybody that's that's significant in the financial sector looking out for, for who could be about to go bankrupt. They're looking at all the, the financial markets, the market for municipal bonds, uh, the repo market, the mortgage market, and they're saying they're just looking for signs of people making stress sales and the market kind of breaking down that that's their mindset. I I don't think they could even, and above all, they're looking at the market for treasury debt and for signs that, and I think they're seeing signs that people are just not willing or able to buy all the debt that the treasury is issuing. And so they're, they're buying that up. That makes sense. I want to talk about second and third order effects from the from the virus, and I'll focus first on a couple uh, sectors, and then ask for other sort of non-obvious uh, implications elsewhere. So let, let, I want to run by universities, uh, progressivism, and um, and Peter Zeihan's views. <laughs> and basically, my, my question is on the university front: if it's merely just accelerating what would have happened anyways, which is you know the top universities staying staying you know uh, strong, but everybody else sort of losing their cachet and pull and, 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 and business as a result. If progressivism is, is, is going away, you, you responded to Tyler Cowen uh, in a blog post by saying it's, it's merely pivoting, uh, not sort of weakening. And on the, in Peter Zahan's views about America becoming more isolationist, uh, merely just accelerant uh, of that and, and China, you know, likely going to implode at some point is, is his prediction. So universities, then progressivism, then uh, Peter Zahan. Okay, well, universities, uh, I've been, and 
you really have to discount my views a lot because I, I've been bearish on them for a while. I remember Brian Kaplan and I kind of getting into a, a, uh, an online argument many years ago about, you know, what's the probability that uh, a lot of them will go under. I think right now they need government support to stay going. I think John Cochran, you know, who blogs as the grumpy economist, who had a good evaluation of the financial straits that they're in. Uh, they they need you to uh, produce a lot of winners for their because apparently the universities have put a lot of their endowments in illiquid investments, probably including uh, venture funds. So they need you to help them. But um, I think they will ask for government help. In the past, they have always gotten it. They have, a, you have to realize every congressional district just about has an important college or university. And that, you know, more than ideology or anything is going to make them, make it likely that they will get whatever federal funds they need. Now, maybe those funds won't be effective you know, just like the you know the small business loans don't seem to be working as well as as people would hope, but I I think that the government will make some effort to keep them alive, but there certainly will be more pressure than there was before for for to try to maybe change the value proposition, and uh, it, I don't have a a clear picture of how, like if I were a university president what I would do to present a good value proposition. You know, I, if you go to online, you, you miss out on all the synergies of having, you know, students present and help teaching one another and encouraging one another and, you know, all of that. I'm not, uh, I can't see pure online as being a solution, but I do think they'll have to be just, they'll have to be more serious because, the students won't be won't be willing to say, uh, okay, whatever degree I have doesn't matter. Whatever, how much of I have to big a loan I have to take out doesn't matter. They're they're going to be they're going to have a lot more. They're going to be more serious. Uh, if you want progressivism, yeah, I think I I think progressives I think are happy or with the notion that we're going to have more top down engineering. And you know, that's probably what makes me most unhappy is what probably makes them most happy. They would say, you know, we now know that we have to trust experts. We have to trust scientists. My guess is that climate change will be sort of become the main progressive thing. I think they will pivot a little bit away from the uh, identity politics stuff, and but much more in climate change. And they'll just say, look, there's an analogy here. People warned that we could have pandemics, and now look what happened. And they, you know, those warnings were ignored. Now look what happens. Now we're telling you climate change is real. You can't keep ignoring it. If you So that, I think, will intensify. So on the climate change stuff, you know, listen to the experts, but sometimes the experts disagree or is there sort of more or less unanimity among, uh, you know, the experts that I guess they listen to or care about in terms of, of, of climate change? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know that they have the same perception that I do that experts disagree on the virus stuff. I mean, they, they may have this vague sense that, you know, if it weren't for Trump, 
we would have experts in charge and they would take care of the problem. Uh, sometimes I think they think that lockdowns are a cure or they act as if, you know, they, uh, that lockdowns cure the disease and, you know, letting people go spreads the disease. So, so I don't think they're, they're necessarily where I am and I, you know, where they're not seeing, you know, what I see is experts floundering and struggling. And I think the, the models, you know, the models are a problem. Like, I have a very anti-engineering point of view on the models. When, when models have to be built on very shaky assumptions and very um, unreliable data, uh, you end up simulating a world that has nothing to do with reality. And in the case of the uh, of the virus stuff, you know, the models don't pick up nursing homes. They don't. They most of them don't even pick up age differences at all. They don't know what to do about the variability in testing protocols from day to day. So you don't know whether the people tested today were selected because you knew that they had the disease or whether it's a more representative sample. And the models don't know any of this stuff, and it's, it's, it's terrible. I also have a similar view. I'm, I'm, I'm a skeptic of climate models. I've, I can see where a bunch of climate models would say the same thing. There are a bunch of macroeconometric models that say the same thing, but they, they're all built on kind of a groupthink set of assumptions. So I don't know enough about the climate science to, to have a definitive opinion, but I, I don't trust any so-called science that's based primarily on models like that, modeling things where you have to make a lot of assumptions about things you don't know. Like one thing I've read, and I don't know how true it is, is that in climate science, water vapor is actually an important greenhouse gas that is kind of outside the model. Uh, well, if that's true, that that should make one nervous. But regardless of whether climate science is accurate or not, I think the intensity with which progressives push it is going to go way up in the wake of this. Uh, and your main concern is, is, is the, the implications of that being the uh, scope that government has to sort of regulate and try to get involved in counterintuitive ways. Yeah, that, yeah, you, I would expect that, that progressives will push for a lot more government control and a lot, you know, be, and be very approving of stringent policies that affect everyone's behavior in order to try to uh, deal with the climate situation. Yeah. And so let, let, that segues into the Peter Zahan sort of point, uh, point to is this is, is that U S becomes a lot more isolationist um, and that it's in U S's interest to, to do so. And you, there's sort of two responses to this, this crisis. One is sort of, you know, justifying that certainly economically, you can't rely, you know, outsource critical parts of your economy to other countries, but also, you know, our, our many problems are inter, interconnected and you, it require global cooperation like, like climate change. So I guess, what do you think about sort of, is this an accelerant of Zeihan's thesis? Do you disagree at all with Zeihan's thesis? And what does this mean for, for, for sort of globalization, you know, more broadly? It, it looks to me like, Zahan's some of Zahan's forecast seems right. I mean, he he forecasts uh, deglobalization and then just says, "What is?" Said so the reason that he forecasts deglobalization is he said that it's no longer in America's interest to maintain the world order. 
Uh, and the main reason for that is that we are uh, producing, we are now a net energy exporter. And so the main reason that we were concerned about the world order, really from World War II up until you know, three or four years ago, was that uh, we needed to make sure that uh, importing oil was, poss- was possible. So he's saying, no, you know, now that we are a net oil exporter, we've already, we're a food exporter, so we don't have any basic needs that need to be met from overseas. Yes, we have, you know, consumer goods and cheaper electronics, and we can, you know, the supply chain is definitely more efficient when we, uh, when we import from other countries, but our basic needs we can take care of, and that doesn't justify uh, sort of being the world's policeman with our Navy. So he was saying, you know, just regardless, you know, he, I mean, I think he's a fan of the world order. He's not, he's, he's not an isolationist himself, but he's just looking at the incentives, and the incentives are no longer there for the U.S. to maintain the world order. So then he says, well, which countries can do well on their own? And, uh, you know, he's got a, a recent book out, which, you know, goes down country by country. I won't go through them. But he doesn't think China is in good shape in, in a world where uh, it's sort of every country for itself because China has trouble feeding itself and China has, has a tremendous problem supplying itself with energy. It really is dependent on oil from the Persian Gulf. So that's his, his picture of the world. He thought, I think he thought that the world would evolve toward a sort of every country for itself world over a period of five to 10 years. Now we're seeing it happen, you know, instantly. I mean, you know, Europe in some sense has already broken up because they're, they're, they're reinstituting border controls. Uh, I mean, even in the U S there's, there's some States that give you the hairy eyeball if you cross from another state. So we're, we're sort of moving in this, every nation for itself uh, direction very quickly, maybe that will reverse if, you know, if the virus crisis abates, but uh, I, think, I think perhaps not. Let me dig in a bit more on sort of the old progressivism, so, so to speak, sort of the identity politics stuff. You know, there were two books that came out recently, uh, you know, Ezra Klein, Why We're Polarized, and Christopher uh, Caldwell's uh, The Age of Entitlement, the sort of, you know, opposite perspectives. I think yeah. Ezra is less alarmed by the increase in polarization. He thinks it's, you know, social justice requires a bit of activism and a bit of, you know, it's always a bit messy. And so I think he sees some of it as, as, a, as a necessary byproduct of the progress we're making, whereas I, I think Christopher is much more <laughs> alarmed by it and, and sort of, I think, is going as far as to say we should repeal the, the Civil Rights Act or, or something in that, in that realm because it's, it's given too much. It maybe that it itself was good, but it gave too much leeway for others to claim, you know, similar similar sort of, uh, you know, government reg- regulation. Um, how would you edit my characterization, or how do you sort of make sense of of those two books and uh, uh, what they're saying? Okay. Well, first of all, I'll have to say I, I've not read either of them. I've absorbed <laughs> some of them by osmosis. It'll be interesting to see what happens coming out of this. I think. A few progressives have have thrown out what I would call trial balloons about sort of saying how this has hurt minorities much worse than other people, and I don't. You know, we'll see whether the whether that gets anywhere. It doesn't look like it will, 
And if it doesn't, then I think, you know, for the foreseeable future, uh, sort of every, you know, opinion column, political issue, whatever, is going to revolve around the virus stuff. So that's why I think progressives will pivot away from the uh, social justice movement and toward climate change, which is much easier to tie in to the virus crisis. Uh, I also think that it'll be interesting to see what happens with going back to your colleges and universities, where until recently, having a social justice focus and the diversity inclusion movement and so on on college campuses was pretty much a necessity. Now, it might look like a luxury. It'll be interesting to see where, you know, a lot of these colleges and universities, in order to stay alive, are going to have to cut back somewhere. And are they going to maintain their, you know, I think University of Michigan had some like, you know, many multi-million dollar diversity and inclusion bureaucracy. Are they going to maintain that? Are they going to cut it back a little bit? Are they going to shave a lot of it? That'll be that'll be, be a question. My get, put it this way: I don't think that 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 we're going to see a higher percentage of college budgets going in that direction. Maybe the, those budgets won't be cut entirely, but they're not they're not going to be going up. And so, uh, yeah. So I do think that brand of progressivism it's going to have a lot of trouble getting uh, getting any bandwidth from people going forward. Yeah. It's interesting. And what about libertarianism? Is there a pivot uh, there? You mentioned that it's, uh, you know, we'll see less Cato, uh, more, more Galt. Or he said <laughs> yeah, <it. laughs> yeah I, I think that, you know, even before this crisis, there was a general move, I think, to throw libertarian, at least in terms of economics, to throw libertarians under the bus. That uh, the Republican Party was trying to position itself as uh, sort of friends of American workers who are struggling to compete with uh, workers overseas or with immigrant workers. And, you know, that just, that, that puts you against, you know, one of the basic libertarian views, which is, you know, freedom of movement and freedom and free markets. So, you know, the, the Republican Party, you know, it was just no longer a friendly environment for libertarians. The Democratic Party wasn't getting any more friendly for libertarians. It was you know, moving to the left with uh, socialism. So, so it was not a good environment to begin with. And then you get, you know, a classic uh, upward ratchet of the government. That is, anytime there, it seems like anytime there's a crisis, this is sort of Robert Hibbs' crisis in Leviathan, that uh, anytime there's a crisis, people all of a sudden develop a faith that the government can and should solve the crisis. The government gets much bigger, and then it doesn't give up its powers. So even from a civil liberties point of view, you know, we've got this precedent now for the government saying that you know, fr- freedom of assembly does not apply, or it's not universal. You know, if, if we say that, you know, a gathering more of more than 50 people is unhealthy, we can break up a demonstration. And, you know, people may get very used to governments breaking up demonstrations 
uh, forgetting that that even not even bothering to ask the government to have the excuse that the demonstration is unhealthy. Just oh, okay. Well, government's been breaking up demonstrations ever since the virus crisis. So yeah, the government can break up demonstrations. That's okay. So if just from a civil liberties point of view, the restrictions that are being put on uh, are amazing. One of the points I've made is I don't think the externality argument even applies anymore. The original argument for uh, lockdowns was this idea that we need to spread out the infection rate because otherwise hospitals will be overwhelmed. We're in a situation now where a lot of hospitals have excess capacity. Uh, We've only come close to overwhelming hospitals in New York City, and that that crisis is behind us. Yet just about every state has this lockdown. So what is the externality? That is, you know, I might, uh, I think a, a lot of people intuitively feel scared about going out. But what business is it of mine if you decide to go out? It was one thing to say, well, if you go out, and a lot of your friends go out and you all get infected and you all end up in the hospital, then, then I won't be able to get to a hospital bed. I understand that as an externality. But if you go out and maybe you get sick and maybe you don't, but there's plenty of hosp- hospital capacity, the effect on me is just not that large. It, it's sort of comparable. Well, it would be nice if fewer people had, had licenses to drive. That way I might have less chance of getting to a car accident. But that isn't justify, you know, government shutting down, letting people, you know, have driver's licenses. Um, I think that the case for the the public good case or the anti-libertarian case for the lockdowns is really weak. Uh, I mean, government to me is taking a tremendous amount of power for a very little benefit that I can... very little benefit that I can see. And so that, so I, I think libertarianism is in big trouble. Uh, and so what I meant by the, the Galt thing is I could just see, you know, wealthier libertarians saying, you know, if I can't take this anymore, I'll go to New Zealand or, you know, or, uh, you know, or maybe, uh, maybe I would be more comfortable in a seastead. Yeah. Uh, so it was, a, it was a bit of a joke, but I think the, the truth in it is that libertarianism as a political movement has never looked more feeble than it does to me now. Yeah. How is it that, well, if you agree with this characterization, it seems that the public sector has gotten bigger and, and, and continued to, to take more scope. Well, it also seems that people complain that the private sector has continued to, to get bigger. The, the companies keep, you know, we've trillion dollar companies now is just that the economy is getting bigger and thus they both take increasing you know, uh, swaths of it, or it seems that they both take more scope, not just economically, but also, I guess, uh, in other ways as well. Or do you disagree with that? Um, no, I think that, and I think that's both things are happening. Government's getting bigger, and the winning companies are taking a much bigger share of the economy and of profits. And that is, I think, a really big social danger coming up. I mean, the stock market is acting as if about 100 companies, I mean, I think there are only about 100 companies that are really kind of maintaining their value or going up, are going to take over everything while the, you know, these 
tens of thousands of small businesses go under. You know, basically that the, you know, Amazon's going to feed off the carcasses of a, of every mom and pop shop. And that may be a potential economic outcome. I think, I, I don't, I don't think it's sustainable socially. It won't be the America that we've known. I mean, for a lot of people, these small businesses, which are often called lifestyle businesses, that is because they're, they're not making people a ton of money and you as a venture capitalist wouldn't be interested in them at all, but they are allowing people a sense of independence and uh, a feeling of fulfillment. That's a really big part of the American dream. And if that is going to disappear, which I think the stock market is implicitly forecasting, that's, that's, that's not a, a sustainable society. So that's, that may be an outcome that looks like what we're headed to, but I don't think it's an outcome that'll be very pretty. Uh, it's, you know, you can't take every little restaurant owner, every little shop owner and turn them into a sort of government finance surf and have America resemble anything like what it, what it's been. Yeah. What do you say to the idea that the the private sector look, needs to look a little bit more like the public sector and, and vice versa? And what I mean by that is on, on the private side, um, you know, there's a movement within the cryptocurrency uh, community to try to expand ownership so that when a company like Facebook, you know, becomes wealthy or becomes, uh, you know, you know, goes public, it's not just a thousand people that get rich. It could be, you know, a hundred thousand people. And, and the way to do that would be to incentivize, you know, give users uh, like tokens or, or, you know, little equity, little upside, give, give Uber drivers some upside in the company such that, you know, we're aligning more people in the rise of uh, in, the, in, 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 in on the upside instead of you know, giving to them on the, on the back end. That's possible. What, what I think is a more likely outcome is companies that, that, that the big companies become very politically sensitive. So instead of, so I think Tyler or somebody pointed out that if, if we had a really competitive market, a lot of prices for things like masks would have gone up. But because the companies that are selling these products are often very visible and can be attacked politically, they would rather keep prices low and create shortages because they take less heat from doing that than, than if it looks like they're making a profit uh, out, of, out of the situation. So I think, I think we could see, see a lot of sort of, and I think we're already seeing that, a lot of political sensitivity on the part of, of private companies. So in that sense, they are becoming more public. For government becoming more like private? Uh, like a shareholder model. <laughs> like more like... Uh, yeah. No, I, I I don't know. I don't think so. I, I think that they... I don't picture governments becoming that creative. Uh, I think if anything, they're... I think they're going to become more authoritarian, uh, both economically and in terms of tolerating dissent. In part, that's just because they're they're financially in trouble, and in part, I think that's just a natural reaction of people whose competence is questionable and questioned, and can't react any other way but by uh, telling other people to shut up and trying to take more power. Yeah, and but do you think the world would be better if they uh, if that happened? Well, clearly no. Uh, oh no, sorry. Better if it went the shareholder model. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't see that happening. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A broader question: How did we move from sort of freedom from to freedom to? Uh, you know, how, how did sort of the, the idea of liberals 
move from protecting rights to sort of uh, you know willing to violate rights if it if it led to more equality? How do we move from equality to equity? Some of that may be uh, what you know Christopher Caldwell's thesis. I think some of that may just be that the idea of libertarian rights was always a very extremely elitist view. And it was an elitist philosophy that in America was supported by kind of the Jacksonian greater Appalachia don't, you know, constituency, you know, the, the people who had uh, moonshine stills and would shoot the, you know, would, take their rifles out when the revenue came to try to collect taxes on them. So we had that kind of uneasy relationship that depended on elites, you know, believing in Lockean philosophy and then this a large constituency of you know from the opposite end of the social class spectrum. I think maybe they've been crowded out by other other constituents and and I think the the libertarian instincts of the you know the moonshiner mentality i think that I think their libertarian instincts can easily be quelled they can they, they can be manipulated by the the people who are not libertarian, so that would be my story. You wrote in one blog post. You know, I believe it was, this was a book review in the 1950s. The ideal for young Americans was to marry, have kids, and move to house in the suburbs. Uh, you know, now marriage rates are low. We fewer children grow up with married parents, and many young people are urban renters. Uh, the decline of 50s dream raises questions that go. It raises questions like: Has it lost its appeal, or has it just become harder to obtain? Uh, and if so, why? What's What's your opinion on that? I think it's lost its appeal. Could be wrong about that. But I think a lot of people have adjusted to a different lifestyle or uh, it's certainly that the status of that lifestyle has gone down in the public eye or at least in the in the media. So there's a, I mean, there was always, uh, even when I was growing up, the, the you know, little houses made of ticky tacky criticism of suburbia, but uh, it was you know, generally praised. And I think, I think the status has gone down for whatever reason. And, um, you know, we'll see, maybe, maybe that may, you know, there are so many things that could change as a result of this crisis of people, you know, certain beliefs that were, uh, costless to hold may, may feel costly and certain beliefs that, uh, seem costly to hold may, may reduce in cost and maybe the, the culture will change back in some way. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe it's, you know, every generation rebels against the past in some way, and maybe the the next will, you know, take up these old-fashioned values a little bit. It's possible, especially now that, you know, I think people are seeing sort of a, you know, collective threat of death, and that that can focus the mind. You know, the, the prospect of a hanging focuses the mind, and people may be sitting there thinking, well, what do I care about and what do, you know, what do I want my future to be? And they, they may decide that they want the future that looks more like uh, 50s America than, uh, than something else. I'm curious where you disagree with thinkers like Peter Thiel or Eric Weinstein or Ross Douthat in terms of, um, Ross has a new book, The, the Decadent Society. Do you share that thesis that the drop in 
uh, economic growth has come from, you know, more decadence, less, less ambition, less dynamism? First of all, I'm not sure about the thesis about there actually being less, you know, economic growth. And yeah, I, th- I think that that's like too, too complex an issue to sort of slough off onto, uh, well, you know, people have just decided they're not, you know, that they're not interested in, uh, in growth anymore. And sometimes people's individual interests don't end up being translated into what, in what society wants. Like, I, I don't think that there's anybody in this country, or not, not anybody, but I don't think there are very many people in this country who want to see all these small businesses die and get taken over by, um, you know, by the bigger corporations. Uh, yet, you know, for whatever reason, you know, it's it just a lot, it seems a lot easier for government at this point to focus on making sure that banks are solvent and that the airlines don't die than, uh, and has trouble figuring out how to, you know, how to deal with the small business sector. So sometimes you just get results that, that, uh, that no individual wants. And, uh, I think the, the stagnation probably is more that if there is, if there is stagnation and I'm not convinced there is. Have you gone deep on Eric Weinstein's work at all? I'm curious if you have any particular disagreements with him. What I like about him is his sort of disagreeableness and his willingness to say that just because there's a consensus among academics or other you know, elites, that there may be sort of some unintentional repression of other views that may be correct. Uh, I think that's, I agree on that. I uh, probably less conspiratorial in my outlook than he is. I, I, I can see these, this as sort of an, an emergent result rather than somebody saying, wow, we really need to shut these people up. But, you know, there may be instances where the conspiratorial view is more correct. I also think that he dismisses free trade too, uh, too strongly uh, and especially, I I think there's such, such an analogy between trade and technology that you really can't be for one and against the other. You have to look at the good and bad consequences of both, and they're both similar. Um, and, and so that's where I would probably disagree with him on that. And he's pretty strong on immigration too, I believe. He says that it's sort of a wealth. It was a sort of a wealth transfer. Yeah, well, he he sort of says that you know people living in in America kind of have a right to certain things, and right, that means a right to access to the you know to the good job market that's here in America. I have some sympathy with that, but I I, I think that there is really that there is room for uh, plenty of immigration and and letting the uh, immigrant come and live the American dream. Without uh, w- without that causing uh, harm to Americans, you know, to, to people who are already here trying to live the American dream. I think one huge challenge is basically reconciling, you know, meritocracy and egalitarianism. And it, it, put another way, like people don't want to expand the pie, or many people, if it means that there's more inequality, even if it's even if they're getting richer too. If someone's getting, you know, if the rich are getting richer faster than the poor are getting richer, even if the poor are getting richer. They prefer not to get richer in some sense. Yeah, I, I don't think it's the poor that complain. I think it's sort of the right. uh, the people who 
you know, are doing well, but want to make sh- who think they deserve more status than the, than the very wealthy people. So there's that status fight at the top. I think the, uh, I actually think the poor benefit when that status fight is won by the capitalists rather than by the, uh, sort of literary intellectuals. Yeah. And did Biden beating Bernie show that there just isn't enough support for that viewpoint? Uh, if it's enough support for a, or, 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 did, the, the war, did it support what you just said that the poor do better off and, and that they acknowledge it? Um, no, I, I don't think I would read anything profound into that. And uh, yeah, uh, it, I think the the most maybe what it no, I think I think what that was was that you know even people who I'm sure had a first choice of Elizabeth Warren just looked and said, all I want to do is beat Trump. All I want to do is beat Trump. And it just didn't, you know, it, that was, that was an overwhelming motivation. You know, it, they, they really, that, I think that Trump coalesced people around Biden would be the way I'd describe it. Do you, do you have a take for who Biden should take as his VP? Well, I'm one of those people who thinks you should take somebody who could step in in January or February if need be. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it, it needs to be some, I think he, that, that's what he has to go for, is the greatest credibility of a successor. Uh, if he chooses somebody on any other basis, I think he costs votes. Yeah. And, then, and lastly, I mean, to end on sort of the meritocracy note, what, what did you think of uh, Mark Andreessen's it's a, it's a Time to Build? I guess the words that cropped into my head were uh, opportunity cost. I mean, what do you... It's always easy to say, you know, let's invest more in X. What does that mean you invest less in? Um, I mean, for me, that would be an easy answer. Invest less in, you know, government deficits and, you know, and pensions for everybody. But that, uh, but otherwise, you know, I, I, you know it, it's a good time to, for somebody to put in an inspiring vision. And uh, there was certainly every, everything in it was uh, was stuff that looked inspiring to me. I, I thought it was most interesting how uh, people sort of read from it what they wanted to read. You know, Ezra Klein wrote a follow-up piece. He said, yeah, it's time to build. We need more government programs. I was like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if he meant socialism. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I yeah, I, I think I would certainly not count on, yeah, if you gave, if you gave government any more money, I don't think that, that would would jump into their pri- into the priority queue. I think you have to hope that <laughs> you release some of the money from the public sector and the private sector takes up some of those things. And yeah, awesome. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Arnold Kling. Uh, if you want to learn more about what Arnold's been thinking about, check out his fantastic blog, arnoldkling.com slash blog. Uh, Arnold, is there anything else you want to plug uh, that's upcoming? Uh, no, that'll do. That, and uh, enjoyed it as always. Perfect. Yeah, always a pleasure, Arnold. Thank you for coming on and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.